Welcome to The Math of Youth, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 33rd episode, I'll be talking to Chris Rowling, podcaster and co-host of Well-Worn Grooves and All Your Kayfabe Friends, about Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Along the way, we'll discuss why Brock Lesnar really needs to go away, whether an Animorph can really turn into a Godzilla, and reveal the secret society behind all things. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. Reset. Hit the reset button. I just did it right now. Here we go. Find some rap. Hey, I ain't like y'all. I'm in the weird shit. I'm in the back getting weird with my weird friends. Hugging a baseline. But when you feel this, and these moms ain't tight, they are terrorists. And that girl's not white. She's an anarchist. And we float like kites through your turbulence. Yeah, born with our throat slit. Self-stitched. Raised to aim over. A soldier with no king. War with the war on me. I am more than this world. Let's me be. So I be like a beast. Let them bleed. Let me see through the fear, man. I don't even all right, Chris, so for those who may not know you, why don't you tell me who you are and what makes you, in words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake. I'm Chris Rowling. I am a guy who used to write about a bunch of comics, and maybe I'll get around to that again sometime. I am a podcaster. I have two shows going on right now that probably eat up way too much of my free time, but I love doing them, so to heck with it. I have a pro wrestling podcast called All Your Kayfabe Friends, which is named after one of my absolute favorite bands, Los Campesinos, one of their songs. That is a show that I do with Brian McNamara and Kyle Herr. We talk about pro wrestling, I would say weekly, but it's not quite weekly because, you know, sometimes things don't necessarily happen in the world of pro wrestling. We come at it from a very goofy lens, I think is a good word for it. We don't try and take anything too seriously because why would you take pro wrestling seriously? I'm the new fan on that show, so I get to have honest emotional reactions to completely ridiculous things, which is one of my favorite things in the world. I also have a show called Well-Worn Grooves that I do with Colin Anquist, who he has another podcast called Pub Chat, which is a beer podcast, so that might appeal to some of the listeners on this show, since this is a boozy podcast, where each and every week we take two albums seemingly at random and we smash them together and see what comes out of it. We recently did an episode uh, where we took the new Kid Cudi album and the new POS album and had a really fun discussion about sad boy music and whether it's important and what it can do and who it's for. That's kind of my brand right now. The harder part of that question is what makes me a, what is it? A, a beautiful unique, and unique snowflake. Beautiful and unique snowflake. I have a miniature pit bull who I'm real fond of, and I'm ferociously proud of being from Minnesota. <laughs> That'll do it. And also, you're—I mean, I've—I've I've given you shit about this in the pre-show, but you're also real bad about promoting your music podcast. I—I <laughs> <laughs> I don't. And, know. and you need to tell more people. I know. I really do like doing it. I need to be better about talking about it on Twitter. This probably won't shock anybody. Going online recently has not been super fun, thanks to the rest of the world. So I, I've avoided Twitter a lot more than I used to, uh, which means I'm bad at self-promotion now. It happens. You know, when the world falls apart, occasionally communicating becomes difficult. But yeah, sometimes you just want to talk about big dudes throwing each other around and how good music sounds, and so I do. And I mean, especially you mentioned, you know, being a new wrestling fan and, and what that entails, and I've got 
a few my, my, of my regular kind of wrestling friends that I have in, in IRL, in meet space here. That was originally just my friends, Brenton and Alex, coming over. And what became a thing of, hey, you just come over and I'll cook some food and we'll make some drinks and watch wrestling, has become a thing where maybe every second pay-per-view or so, or at least for the big four, now about half a dozen people get together in my house and I'll slow cook something and we'll have cocktails and and have a good time. And I think it's really important that you need to have it as this irony-free zone. Yes, you you have to... Where it's like, you come in to be excited about stuff, to enjoy stuff. And occasionally that excitement can be being annoyed at how things happen, but it's not a place to go, oh, that looks fake. The way I was sold on pro wrestling, because I used to not get it. Like, I grew... I've talked about this on my show, so if you're really curious about my history, you can go find that. But the quick version is, I didn't really grow up with it. Um, I had seen a couple matches, because I grew up during the Attitude Era. Like, I was born in 1990, so I was just the right age for how ridiculous that was. But it just wasn't a thing. Like, I, I have a vivid memory of one pay-per-view my dad bought, which I still don't know why, because none of us cared about wrestling. The way I was finally sold on it was... I want to say Chris Sims said this on a War Rocket Ajax at some point. He said, the wrestlers are playing the role of wrestlers. The crowd is playing the role of the crowd. And that just made it click in my head because I love enjoying things. I don't like irony. I don't like distancing yourself from things that you really love, which is part of the reason I was excited to come on this podcast. And there is something about how over the top and ridiculous pro wrestling is that just appeals to a lot of things I like and the fact that you get to play a fan is so fun you get to cut loose and just enjoy something or hate something and I actually did something similar to you and your friends for the Royal Rumble I had probably five or six people over my friend Aaron was there she's also a wrestling fan and the rest of the people in attendance weren't or like had some general knowledge and when Ty Dillinger came out at number 10 (laughs) Aaron and I lost our minds and were trying so hard to explain because we like got up out of our seats and <laughs> you know we're freaking out and everybody's like the, who is this guy why do you care he has a 10 on his butt <laughs> <laughs> we were trying like so hard to explain while trying to watch and you know it's it, that unbridled joy and you're like no no you don't understand you don't understand he's he's the perfect 10 <laughs> he's perfect he's the perfect 10 he's perfect He's got weird hair, but he's perfect. (laughs) And his shirt lights up. (laughs) He's got really high collar. I don't know why. He kind of looks like Mr. Sinister. But there was this other guy who looked like Mr. Sinister last WrestleMania. He's got that Mr. Miracle collar happening. That's what it is. That's a much better thing than... But no, Cody Rhodes' Mr. Sinister I've used a couple of times to, to tell people how wrestling is dumb and amazing. It's like, oh, there's this guy, and he was Cody Rhodes, and he was dashing. And then Rey Mysterio broke his nose, and he became undashing and wore a plastic mask like Hannibal Lecter. And then they took the mask off. and a real Paper bags over people's heads. Yeah, because, you know, I'm going to show you. I don't want to look at you. You're all so ugly. And then he took his mask off, and there was no damage. And then it was revealed the ugliness was inside of him, and he could embrace that now. And then he got fired, but he had to come back. And his brother, who was a weird gimp suit guy named Goldust, before he was, like, after and before he was a preacher, and and then he decided to go so full supervillain and pick a fight with fucking Green Arrow. Yes, literal Green Arrow. <laughs> like, like it makes comics continuity sound sober. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, but they're all so precious, and we love them. Yeah, they're our boys <laughs> and girls. Absolutely. Speaking of which, I think the last time that I really stood up and cheered. Actually, no, scratch it. There was another time in between this. But when, <laughs> when Asuka debuted on one of the NXT takeovers, 
and turned up and just like everything from the entrance to the match to the finish and i was just like i all of us were in the room were just standing and just repeatedly saying oh my god oh my god this is, Asuka is a blessing yeah she is she's amazing i was lucky enough to go to an nxt live show mm-hmm. where there was like an eight-year-old girl sitting right around kind of the bend of the upper deck from me where the second Oscar showed up, anytime she showed up in the promo video they played, you know, anytime she showed up to, to build the tiny little, you know, house show story they do, she just started screaming, I love you, Oscar! I love you, go, Oscar!" And, like, through the whole night, like, she was against Ember Moon, who everyone, you know, I like Ember Moon. Ember Moon's we great, yeah. To see it. But this little girl was, like, straight up for her blood. Like, she wanted to watch Oscar rip Ember Moon's head off, and it was a delight. Because, yeah, they did an NXT tour of Australia, and, and luckily we all got tickets and yeah ember moon asuka was like my match of the night because it was amazing it was very fun and it, yeah and asuka's t-shirt was the one t-shirt i bought because all the t-shirts are incredibly expensive at the australian live events oh i bet you're basically buying a plane ticket for every piece of merch that you buy and so <laughs> it's like yeah it flew in its individual thing it got its newspaper it got the <laughs> it got complimentary beverage <laughs> so oh, uh, but yeah i knew i saw that shirt and i'm like Okay, it, A, it's for a wrestler I love. B, it's not that expensive. And C, it's one that I could wear in mixed company when someone's not going to look at you and go, what the fuck are you wearing? <laughs> it's a cool shirt. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really cool shirt. I, I only own a handful of shirts. I'm not a big merch guy for, like, any of the stuff I love because mm-hmm. most most merch is terrible and, like, doesn't look good. <laughs> but I, I've had, weirdly enough, like, multiple people react to wrestling shirts. Mm-hmm. Like, I snuck into an anime con a couple months ago, which is a whole nother story. But I, I was, like, walking in, and there's all these, like, people in cosplay and, like, like Homestuck things in this hotel. And I just had, like, jeans and this Seth Rollins t-shirt on. And I walked by these kids. I want to say they were playing Magic. It might have been Yu-Gi-Oh! People still play that, right? Yeah, I'll vouch uh, for that. And... <laughs> God, that made me sound so old. I'm, like, walking past this kid's table, and he literally, like, put his cards down, pointed at me, and instead of saying, like, hi, or I like your shirt, he just went, Seth Rollins! <laughs> and, I, like, I was cosplaying as him or something, which I was not. And you're like, no, Chris Rowling, but nice to meet you. <laughs> Thanks, though. You seem cool, too. See ya. I had that happen once with a CM Punk shirt. But it was very late at night, and I didn't want to turn around because it just sounded like a bunch of rowdy bros. And I was wearing a CM Punk shirt, and one turned around and yelled, CM Punk! And they both all started chanting it, and I'm like, if I turn around, this could go badly. It might go well. I fight them. But it's, it's quarter past 11. I don't... No, I'm just going to keep walking. I'm going to the train. I had a little girl yesterday in a Brock Lesnar shirt. Uh, I was wearing that same Seth Rollins shirt. Somebody at work had pointed me out and said, oh, you should go ask him to show him your shirt. So I like opened up, I had a zip up sweater on and I opened it and she goes, ugh, Seth Rollins, (laughs) which is the exact reaction you want for a Seth Rollins shirt from a little girl. I'm no chump mark, sir. Yeah. She's here for Suplex City. Oh my god! She's a good, she's a good Minnesota fan. She loves that boy, that Brock boy, <laughs> the world's tiniest beast incarnate. <laughs> oh, he terrifies me. I'm like really sad he's booked from here. Oh, he's not even I... actually from Minnesota, isn't he? I have been told apparently he really doesn't like. I think he's from like Iowa, and he really hates his home. And so apparently when he came to the U of M, he was like, this is my home now. Brock Lesnar hates Iowa because it's where he clawed his way screaming into the world. And he's never forgiven them for that. From the pits of hell. It's some doomsday shit. (laughs) I hate Brock Lesnar. 
sorry, people who like wrestling, who like Brock wrestling. He, he's terrible. I hate him. Uh, I don't want to. He's a spectacle, and I get that, but I I just want to watch him lose so bad. I want to watch him get beat up so bad. See, I was fine with him when he turned up the first time, and he fought Cena, and Cena beat him at, like, the cost of his arm. And I'm like, good, done. There's your story. Go away. Yeah, that's a good story. And then he stayed for, like, three fucking years. We couldn't get... We still can't get rid of him. Nope. Goldberg can't get rid of him, and he's the Jewish superhero. Maybe he will. Uh, let's not talk about that. We are going to end up fantasy booking WrestleMania all oh, night. God, I can't do it. Ain't nobody got time for that. I just did a show on it. I can't do it. <laughs> all right, Chris. Well, let's segue away from wrestling out of the trench that we've dug this show into, and we'll pull it out. Yeah, it's supposed to be about what you were new when you were young, not like the last year. <laughs> all right, then well, let's start at the basics. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Like I said, very ferociously proud to be from the great state of Minnesota. I'm a surly Midwesterner, like some of your former guests. And then I've moved in and around Minneapolis and St. Paul for pretty much my entire life. Cool. I have a question about Minnesota because I always thought of Minnesota as like East and, but then again, I also have admitted in previous episodes, my knowledge of what is what in American geography is terrible. So Minnesota is Midwest because I, I only just learned like within the last year that Chicago is apparently Midwest. So, well, here's, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. I'm bad at geography too. So you came to the wrong guy, but the phrase Midwest is really misleading. And I've always wondered too, because Minnesota to me is like dead center North period. I don't think there's an argument to say it is even West. Other than that, I think the East Coast thinks they are such an important part of the country that it has like, it just like sucks all the size their way. So we are pushed further West. Shots fired. All you coastal elites. <laughs> so in this Midwestern paradise, what sort of kid were you? That's a good question. I was, I don't want to say like quiet because I've never been quiet and I was repeatedly told so by adults. <laughs> But I was, I was a quiet kid. Like, I, I liked books. I liked video games. I liked being by myself and playing make-believe and, and making up characters and writing things and, you know, playing with my toys, which all had extensive backstories and, of course, you know, multiversal happenings because, of course, you know, the Power Rangers had to hang out with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, and all that. <laughs> um, so I was always into stories. Like, I would force like i you know the neighborhood kids you hang out with the rest of them were also you know nerdy kind of loners but they were way more into just like playing a video game or you know like eventually we all got to play D, &D which kind of was a natural thing for me but i would drag them kicking and screaming into playing pretend and it was always you know oh whatever book i was reading or whatever tv show i was into i, I always wanted to play that game and we again would you know if i was like my friend was really into godzilla uh, excellent and and like in the way that i know like adult nerds are into godzilla where he like knew all the monsters and like was into the japanese versions and hated the american versions but could like tell you the differences so it was almost always like a fan fiction thing of like whatever i was into meets godzilla <laughs> which made for some really rad make-believe now that i'm thinking about it i was gonna say just saying i would watch a megazord versus godzilla just saying. Oh, and I'm sure that happened. But, like, he also hated to play those games. <laughs> so I was, like, I was just, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I was essentially a DM with just, like, an unwilling player. <laughs> but, you know, I have a big personality, so I was able to take advantage of that. It's like, no, a wild Godzilla has appeared. Roll for initiative. <laughs> it's like, but I don't, I don't care. 
Well, it was like, I was really into the Animorphs as a kid, so I'm pretty sure we did a thing where, like, I was an Animorph kid and could become a Godzilla or whatever. Like, we did all sorts of dumb shit, but, you know, it's the type of thing kids do. Yeah, totally. When I wasn't doing that, like, I was definitely more of an indoor kid, even though I spent probably an inordinate amount of time, like, wandering the small neighborhood I was in or, like, going to the local pool and all that kind of stuff, but it was always about, like, when I could go back to reading. As much as I was into video games, which I, you know, is still a thing I do, and I, I like games quite a bit, it was reading was always the biggest passion which even as a kid I was reading comics and I like begged my I can't remember which parent but one of my parents to buy me my first chapter book when I was in like first grade I think it was actually an Animorphs book which are a little higher than first grade but I like struggled through it I don't know how long it took me to read but I fucking went for it and of course it wasn't the first volume because there was like 40 of them and I just grabbed the one that had a cool looking animal it's like okay this is my book this is what I want Chris I hate to tell you that is literally all of them <laughs> that is the selling point of the Animorphs books is the cover has a cool looking animal on it oh they got me they got me believe me <laughs> initially when you wanted to come on the show you wanted to speak about one particular book series and we'll get to that in a moment but what what are some of the other ones apart from animorphs that were really getting your attention <laughs> i'm like a little embarrassed that i just talked about animorphs that much no judgment the map to view is a safe space that was a big one it's such a bizarre series i would love to do like a deep dive reread of it someday or just watch the tv series that was nuts as well Ooh no don't. Ooh, that show's a train wreck. <laughs> I think that's when I developed critical thoughts about entertainment was when I saw that show. I was like, ooh, these can be bad, huh? <laughs> I wish I could think of the name of this. I even like tried to research it today and couldn't come up with a name. There was a series of young Merlin books that I got into because I read the last one. Okay. Because I didn't know it was part of a series. This is apparently a theme. I worked my way backwards through them, but I was like super into them. And then there was another one called The Seventh Tower, which is by Garth Nix, who has written books that people love that I've somehow never actually read. Like he wrote Sabriel, uh, which I know people are really into and I just never read. But The Seventh Tower was like this book about, it was the book your mom bought you because the new Harry Potter hadn't come out yet. Ah. That's not an exaggeration. Like she came home and was like, I went to the bookstore and asked what I should buy you if since you read all the Harry Potter books. It was about like this, what's the word for it? Like segregated society where there were seven towers, each through a color of the rainbow. And like basically however high up you were was how rich you were and had different privileges and stuff like that. But there was magic associated with it. It was like Green Lantern magic because it was all based on light and construct. There was a shadow world where you bonded with a spirit that became your shadow it was like really high concept, weird fantasy stuff, which became a thing I got really into and to this day still respond to. And look, I know Garth Nix is, is a very well-respected author, but I think you've just described every YA novel I've heard about in yeah, the past yeah. 10 years. No, it's, it's so prototypical YA, and it like when you say it out loud, it's the hackiest shit. And I, and I know that, and I think even at the time I was kind of like, maybe this is bad. But like, there's a cool Viking lady who fights with a glowing narwhal horn. Like, how is that not metal as hell? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking rad. Like, where's that movie? I don't, like, we could skip every other book adaptation. Give me that. Where's my narwhal lady? I also didn't know narwhals were real. I thought it was like the thing for the book. <laughs> yeah, they're basically unicorns. Yeah, like, here's the thing. It makes perfect sense as a kid when you're reading a fantasy novel. When a narwhal shows up, you go, oh, yeah, 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 that's fake. <laughs> By the way, if you're ever bored, go to Google and search goat unicorn, because apparently when goats are babies uh, and their horns are still developing as these 
little kind of bony nubs on their head, what you can do is you can remove one of them and center the other one. And so when it grows, it'll still grow like a horn, but there's only one of them. Oh my god, like, you file it down? No, no, you don't have to file it down. It's just that when they're that young, it's kind of like when a baby skull is first forming. Oh, you, you can just play with it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And so you get, I'm going to look this up. It's got some give. Goat unicorn. And because goats are, like, pretty demonic looking anyway, with their weird, like, Kermit the Frog eyes. Oh, yeah, with their fucking Satan eyes? Yeah. Uh, here we go. I'm dropping this into the chat. Oh, that's that's just like my brain. It looks like Photoshop. Yeah. Like my brain won't recognize <laughs> it as a real thing. Like it it doesn't. My eyes don't want to focus on it. It's weird. And what's funny is that it doesn't look like anything majestic or anything because goats are still goats. These shaggy little things and they're goofy little things. And I, I stand by the Terry Pratchett view, which is that there's nothing magical about unicorns. They're just a horse that comes to a point. And I think if they were if they were real i think this would be a more realistic approximation because like you think about wild horses they don't look particularly majestic they usually look like rough coated and a little bit beat up from you know being wild and so i think if there was a unicorn it would be this nasty kind of looking thing that looked like it might shiv you if you turned your back oh you get to furries real quick if you google goat unicorn <laughs> oh man that's not that's not a value judgment that's just a statement <laughs> It is a fact. So coming back to the books you were reading, away from goat unicorns. Yes. So you specifically wanted to talk about one series in particular, and that was Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events. Now, my knowledge of this series is pretty slim. I shelved a whole lot of them when I worked at Borders. I saw a bit of the film when it was on a TV screen that I was working in the section of. And I know there's a series on Netflix. But other than that, the only thing I've read is the very first one, which I got in a pirated books bundle for my Kindle. So, Chris, I'm going to get comfy. Tell me about a series of unfortunate events. In preparation for this show, I actually reread the first one in about an hour. Because <laughs> it's been years. I probably read the first one when I was in fifth or sixth grade. And again, it started as like a, well, the new Harry Potter is now. What do I get my kid who can't stop reading books? I just fell in love with them. They're, weirdly enough, they're in-universe fiction, but we can get to that later. They tell the story of three orphans, or I should say three children whose parents die in a fire. <laughs> it's funny because my friend Erin, when I said that, she was like, wow, that, that's some pretty bleak shit for a kid's book. And I was like, well, I was kind of already used to that idea because I liked Batman. <laughs> you know, that is that is a fictional thing I was ready for. But that's probably the, the like least terrible thing that happens in the books. Like the whole shtick is, even in the writing, it, it constantly references, hey, this is bad and sad and you should not be reading this because you are a poor innocent child. Like the... The book speaks to the readers, which is a really fun thing as a kid because you don't know what metafiction is. You don't know how that works. <laughs> you just think this is this clever book that's that's just for you and makes you feel very smart. And it spends a lot of time teaching words and teaching phrases, but not in a condescending way. Like, they're mostly jokes. They'll even define some of them wrong just to make a joke work. It's, it's kind <laughs> of a really fun convention. These three orphans, the, the Baudelaire, Baudelaire, I guess, Baudelaire children. I think it's Baudelaire, yeah. but yeah. I always read it. That's the thing. It's one of those things you only read it and you you don't know how to say it mm -hmm. uh the Baudelaire children go on adventures and are are accosted at all sides from the evil Count Olaf who is an incredibly theatrical arch villain 
who's really into themic crime. He should be a, a Batman villain. <laughs> the three children have very special skills. You know, they're very clever children. They're very bookish children and very smart children. And one of them is an inventor. And one is a, he's a reader and a researcher. And, and the one is a baby who bites things. <laughs> She's the Wolverine of the group, essentially. <laughs> I kind of realized that in my rereads, and I was like, oh, she's Wolverine. Okay. (laughs) It's really clever, and and it's weirdly dark and bitter might be the word. I'm not even sure. It just, it's not a tone you ever associate with children's entertainment. It's it's meant to be kind of gothic, and and I don't mean, like, black hair and nail polish. I mean, like, the architecture style and the uh, the narrative style and, and tone, and it's very, it's still very simple. Like, I'm not trying to sit here and say, oh, it's this this great book about what it means to be a man and, and <laughs> a person and blah, blah, blah. It's just, they're, they're very straightforward, and they're not condescending. They talk Talk to the reader who, you know, is supposed to be a child in a manner where they are bringing the kid up to the content and not bringing the content down to the kid. And that as like a kid who thought he was way smarter than he was, you know, that really appealed to me. Yeah, I think it's something with metafictional narratives and also even things like if it's parodying something or if it's something that is in reference to something else. When you're a kid, you don't get that. You But it's only later when you go back and look and you go, oh, there was a lot in play in the situation. Like, think about, you know, as a kid watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit and being like, oh, it's just a movie about cartoons. And it's like, you don't realize until later, oh, there was so much more going on in that movie. Yeah, and I think I had the same thing with this because I had to work backward. Later, I would read things or watch movies or, you know, whatever, and I'd be like, that's what they were trying to do. That's where that came from. <laughs> like, there's a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea book, essentially, and I didn't know what the hell that was when I was, you know, in sixth or seventh grade. And then later, I was like, oh, that's why his name's the submarine's name is Queequeg or whatever. <laughs> See, I had that with, I was older still, but I still hadn't seen it was that I read the Terry Pratchett book Jingo, which is based in a fictional Arabic continent, and then went back and watched Lawrence of Arabia maybe five years later, and I went, oh, oh yeah. right. <laughs> that That's why he, like, you know, holds a coal to light his cigarette and, like, lets it burn his fingers and, like, holds eye contact with somebody else and says something about how the trick is not to mind that it hurts. But, of course, because it's Terry Pratchett, the minute the other guy leaves, he drops it and he goes, ow, shit, shit, does anyone have any water? <laughs> <laughs> that is... That is so my kind of joke. Yep. There's a lot of clever, and clever is going to come up a lot in this because I don't want to say smart because it's still a children's book. Like, I blew through the first book in an hour tonight, and I am not a fast reader. And it was a, it was a fun trip, but I, I kept catching things that aren't pointed out as a kid. Like, Count Olaf, all of his aliases are just anagrams. Oh, no. So this is a, an Alucard situation, is it? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Like, the first book is all based around the idea of, oh, I probably should say, like, he's trying to steal their fortune. That's the shtick. (laughs) These children who don't have access to their fortune because they're children, he's trying to steal it. He's an actor with an evil troop of actor minions who are all a bit problematic in their own right. He stages a play where he will actually marry. He's going to shoot, marry her. (laughs) It's not a work. It's not a work, brother. Man, he's such a carny, but... (laughs) He's going to marry her and, and, you know, through hijinks, they get out of it. But the writer of the play is just his name spelled differently. (laughs) And it's never pointed out in the first book. I think it comes up later in the series where, like, the kids realize it. (laughs) 
but it's you know it's fun stuff like that like it it was a cool thing for kids who thought they were clever to get to pick apart like the moment i think of there's a secret society that starts to develop in the background of the books and i realized the only reason i picked this subject is i was talking with my friend and we were talking about influences or whatever and this book came up and i hadn't thought about it in years but i realized there were a million things from it of what i look for now in fiction and what i love and secret societies is one of those things and i realized i could trace it all all the way back to this book there is this organization called the vfd and they have this very cool symbol that is an eye and then the eyelashes become the f and the d and the i kind of makes the v and that i symbolism is there from the first book but then it slowly and slowly builds and gets added to this vfd and i had a friend who we would share these books and we'd pass them back and forth and we would pour over them for clues and whatever because this weird meta narrative starts to build and you find out that lemony snicket is also a character in these books <laughs> he is not just the author he somehow is involved in what's going on and, and you start to piece it together and this vfd keeps showing up and keeps showing up and i figured out what it stood for right before the book came out where it got revealed oh so you were right and i was right which is the worst thing for a clever kid because boy does it go straight to your head <laughs> I had not read the latest one because it was a side book. It's like the diary of Lemony Snicket or something like that, where it actually gets revealed. <laughs> I knew my friend had it, and he was going to lend it to me when he was done. And I was, like, going between classes in middle school because, you know, they want you to feel like you're in a real school. So I'm, like, you know, going from science class to English or whatever. And my buddy catches me in the hallway and punches me in the arm and just goes, I hate it. I hate that you were right. <laughs> and I didn't know what he was talking about. Do you, do you want to reveal it on the show? spoilers because they'll probably get to it on the tv show in like four years or whatever it's the volunteer fire department <laughs> what if i'm remembering correctly what? Uh, at least that was my that was my read on it because if you notice there are a lot of fires and bad people use fires to get rid of you know secrets and keep things covered and so there are all these volunteers and that word starts popping up and there's all these volunteers that go around the world and try and take care of these fires and take care of people who are harmed by them and they all use very bookish clever things to do it's this is another thing that i came to like is everybody has their thing which surprise i love the x-men <laughs> It was the series that made me believe, like, oh, you can have a thing you're really into because the characters are so specific in their likes and dislikes. And that wasn't really a thing I got before that. I was just like, I like books. You know, I didn't know people had passions. And this is a very passionate series, even though it's very dull and dark and weird. Yeah, I think it's something where you can definitely see a shift in what is now considered YA fiction, but would have been considered children's literature once upon a time. The change between being able to build in that complexity and like just accept that your readers are going to get it, where it's like you could probably read those first few books and not look for the clues and still have an okay time. But if you're looking... Oh yeah, because I loved him as a kid. Yeah. It's like, but if you're looking, if you're really looking, if you're that kind of clever kid, it's like, it's there for you. But also, like you mentioned, the idea of you don't have to be good at a thing, but you can have a thing that is your thing. And that has its own weight and import. And I think that's a, a real change in how a lot of protagonists are being shown. Yeah, it's not that they're not good at their things, because they definitely are, but they're these passions that like drive them forward and give them a purpose. Because yeah, there's the driving narrative of just them wanting to stay alive and figure out why their parents died in a fire because it becomes very apparent very quickly it was not a random fire they have these things and they matter to them and people know it about them and they are defined by it in such an interesting way at least in a way i hadn't seen as a kid and now now i'm 
I'm more hesitant to be the kind of person that defines themselves so much by the things they consume, but this is defining yourself by something you do and, and are capable of. And that there's, there's something so cool about that when you're a kid and you, you don't really know that that's a thing. And you're like, when I grow up, I want to be X, Y, and Z. You don't realize there's, there's more to it than that. Yeah, it's cool. I like it. Also, these books are like scary and dark and violent in really weird ways. <laughs> Well, they, they do warn you. I mean, they warn you right at the beginning. They say bad they things. They warn you repeatedly. Yeah, bad things are going to happen. There's a bit near the end of the first book where it actually warns you and reminds you, I said this was not going to have a happy ending. And if you put the book down now, it can because you don't know any better and you'll never read the rest of it. Please put the book down. You will go on being happy. And that's such a good bit. And it makes you want to read more because you're, you're a dumb little kid who just like needs to know. It's like, maybe if I read, maybe it'll turn out okay. And it makes it feel like contraband. It makes it feel like something you're not supposed to have, which is the best kind of thing when you're a kid. That's such a powerful feeling, too. It's like, I feel like I shouldn't be reading this, or I'm reading something that shouldn't be read by someone my age or by me specifically. Yeah, it's great. Which is kind of how I felt about the comics I was reading, which kind of, you know, these books kind of led me to comics in a way. There's a lot of the same stuff, especially superhero comics. You know, you get the band of weirdos who are good at things. There's secret societies. There's this layered continuity where you get to feel like you know you know things because you know it you know when i was 13 or 14 was really lucky to discover things like vertigo which are not necessarily books somebody who's 13 should really be reading no it's almost as if they created an entire imprint to separate it from the stuff that 13 year olds would be yeah, reading it, it's almost like you shouldn't read a book where they say fuck a bunch and there's like weird serial killers and murder and and you know i read transmetropolitan and when i was 14 or 15 <laughs> Transmetropolitan, I read it at maybe like 26, and I thought, maybe I'm too young for this book. I did not get any of it, but guess what? I ended up going to school for journalism. <laughs> Thing is, I, I actually read Transmetropolitan when I was working at a place I really didn't like. Oh, boy. And I think it was the back of, like, the fourth trade or something. It's got Spider sitting with his laptop, like, with, like, this crowd of people passing in front of them, and he's glaring directly at the camera, and it says, I hate it here. And I... <laughs> I had that as my phone's lock screen for the longest time. <laughs> That's a dangerous combination, reading a book like that in a place you can't stand, because it gives you visions of grandeur, like, I could go out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> or occasionally hide under my desk and, like, peer around the corner and be like, I don't trust any of you dog fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Just grow a great big bushy beard. Yep. Lose it in an acid shower or whatever the fuck happens the first issue of that book. Yeah, c come down the mountain looking like Alan Moore and step out looking like Grant Morrison. <laughs> yeah, that was a little on the nose, don't you think? <laughs> I, I could do a whole podcast about Transmetropolitan. Fuck, I love that book. It's such a good book. <laughs> I should really revisit it. Just as an aside, there's a really great column on Comics Alliance right now that Charlotte Finn's been writing and that is a retrospective on that book, volume by volume. She did a great one on Preacher not too long ago, too. Oh, yes, I remember reading some of the Preacher ones. I'll have to get into the Transmet ones. Because Charlotte's real cool. She's she's an amazing writer. Absolutely. And just saying, Charlotte, if you want to be on the show, drop me a line. Happy to have you. I haven't watched the new TV show, so I can't comment on it, but people seem to really enjoy it. Yeah, people have been saying lots of good stuff, and not necessarily people who would be into the books as much. So I think something as an adaptation needs to be able to stand on its own two feet and be able to 
be an enjoyable, like a good show in addition to a faithful adaptation? Oh, 100%. I am actually more fascinated by adaptation than I am most things in this world. I'm so interested in when it succeeds and why and when it fails and especially why then. Like, I am enraptured with Legion. I don't know if you've been watching it at all. I'm stacking it up, but I haven't seen it yet, so watch the spoilers. I love the source material. That second X-Men Legacy run is one of my favorite comics. That's the Sysperior one, right? Yes. And the show, while it is taking kind of the basic concept from it and kind of in name, is completely different, especially narratively. Like, David is not, as far as I know in the show, related to Professor X in any way, Mm -hmm. which is a core part of that series. Like, that series might as well be called Daddy Issues the Book. (laughs) But it's very different, and none of the other characters are recognized. Well, most of the other characters are not recognizable X-Men characters. The word mutant only shows up once in a while it is a very different thing but it works so well with what it's doing and it works so well on its own two feet and i love it cool well, i'm definitely gonna have to uncork that one once kimiko gets back because yeah you'll dig it i heard like no fanfare about it and i was downtown like just waiting to cross the street and a bus went by with a big sign that said legion from the makers of x-men whatever and and i went <gasps> And I like quickly whipped up my phone and took a picture and like tested like four people. I'm like, who knew about this? Who didn't tell me about this? I blame all of you. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Like it has fucking amazing cinematography. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Hannibal, which I think there are Hannibal people involved in it. I could be wrong. Well, it's the guy from Fargo, right? Yeah, the showrunner from Fargo, I believe, is also the showrunner in this. But I want to say some of the cinematography staff might have been involved in Ham. Hamilton. Uh, Hannibal? (laughs) That I would watch. (laughs) It's a very different television show, but I would be here for it. (laughs) Cool. I'm definitely going to have to check it out. So, Chris, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? You can find both my shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and I believe the Google Play Store now. Is that what they call it? Google Play Store? I think so. I'm not an Android person. But you can find both of them there. It's all your kayfabe friends with an apostrophe. That's very important. Not an apostrophe, an exclamation point. That's very important. And well-worn grooves. That's going to be the music show, which I don't promote enough, apparently. I'm learning that now. (laughs) So I'll say it again. You can find well-worn grooves on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store, whatever your pod catcher of choice is. That one's weekly. All your KV friends is like uh, every week and a half or so, we'll call it semi-weekly. And then you can find me on Twitter at CM Rolling, which is C-M-R-O-H-L-I-N-G. It is not a CM Punk reference as much as I am into wrestling now. Those are just my actual initials. <laughs> that's pretty much it right now. I might have some writing coming down the pipeline, but I don't want to promote anything that's not set in stone. So I'll just, I'll just leave that live for right now. Okay, cool. All right, well, thanks very much, Chris. And I'm glad you're promoting your show now so I can stop bugging you about it. Thanks for having me on. This was a hoot. This is like the best kind of nostalgia. rolling for his time for chris's signature cocktail he made a specific request of no vodka and no aniseed flavor this was exceptionally easy to carry out as i'm not a fan of either of those things so i present the kit snicket in a large mixing glass combine the following ingredients over two large ice cubes 
two ounces of Irish whiskey, one ounce of Lillet Blanc, and a quarter ounce of triple sec. Stir rapidly until entirely combined and strain into a champagne coupe. Top with two dashes of Peychaud's bitters and a twist of lemon peel. This beverage was invented by Al Funkut and his receptionist, Shirley T. Sinois Pessy, during the writing of The Marvelous Cocktail. It was so delicious it sustained them through the sequels, why I believe I've become even more delicious. And one last warning to those who try to stand in my way, also referenced as the unauthorized autobiography. Enjoy! A rain cloud, a crane on Just come here to dance If you know what I mean Do you know what I mean? If you just give me a chance You'd see what I see Do you see what I see? is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. Fair warning, there have been a lot of Snapchats of my dog at the beach. Just saying. If you'd like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as dollar a month. Or as much as you want. You can make it rain. I ain't gonna judge. You can get early access to shows, physical rewards, and I would really, really appreciate it. In fact, things have been going so great on the Patreon, I'm going to start doing a special Patreon-only monthly podcast where I talk about everything that I'm enjoying right now. Some of the reward tiers come with special thank yous on the show, so this week, my thanks are to Jessica Fletcher and Celine Papanastastio. You two are awesome. I'm also thinking of revamping the Patreon in the coming months and providing some new rewards that people really like, so if you have ideas, send them through in an email. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can head on over to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a playlist of every song I've ever used on the show all the way back to episode one. I update it as soon as the episode is live and you can hear music like this. It's I Didn't Just Come Here to Dance by Carly Rae Jepsen. Usually at the end of the episode, I throw in some fun conversation I had with a guest. However, Chris and I talked for like 25 minutes and for like 45 minutes afterwards that we forgot to record, so I'll be releasing a special bonus episode midweek. My impression of Dusty Rhodes reading a Kafka audiobook will have to be consigned to the ether. Sorry, we weren't recording that. Next week, I'll be talking to artist Aaron Hunter about magic in media. Join me, won't you? And then I've moved in and around Minneapolis and St. Paul for pretty much my entire life. Cool. 
And that was not a fart, by the way. That was the chair squeaking. I have a swivel I, chair. I and I'm like, the minute I heard I it, I'm like, oh, look, this is what happens if I try to lean. I'm like, can I reach the charger and plug my phone in while this is happening? And I realized that no, I can't. So I'm actually going to put my head down, put the phone off for a moment. So just hold That's on one second. All right, I'm back. And yeah, I, I had to right. preface that because I'm like, normally the chair just goes like this and creaks, and then I move and I'm like, I, yeah. I can't not acknowledge that. He's gonna think I just farted. <laughs> if I would have told you to go to the doctor, <laughs> like, sir, you you may need to get that checked. Drop me a line. Happy to have you. Silence. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for backing me up there, pal. <laughs> I just didn't want to step on your moment. Yeah, that's okay.